I'm so honored and humbled to be here again this year. Um, what would New York be without Revolu Revolutionary Love Conference? Right? What would New York be without it? So everything happens in New York, and I'm so proud of Jackie and her team and everybody who's actually come from all over the country, perhaps even the world, to join us. So um, again, my name is Dr. Debbie Almentasser. I'm so delighted to be here today to share with you um, about my book. So I just published a book called Leading While Muslim. Thank you. Thank you. It was actually a publication that is very near and dear to my heart because it was inspired by my personal experience. I don't know how many of you know my story. Okay, I will tell you. Thank you, Jackie. I saw a couple of hands there, but it happened 10 years ago. I'm the founding and former principal of the Khalil International Academy, the first Arabic dual language public school in the United States. <laughs> I know that's a mouthful to say, but if there was one thing that I want to be remembered for once I'm long gone, you know, uh, it would be the founding principle of this extraordinary school that was created to tell the story of the Arab peoples in the United States. So the school still exists. Um, it is in Brooklyn and um, doing really well. And I am here today to share with you not just my own story, but the story of 14 other American Muslim principals working in public education and what life has been like for them in the aftermath of September 11th. These 14 principals actually are leading across the country unsung heroes who've sacrificed their lives to teach our inner city youth, day in and day out, leading, sadly, with microaggressions, racism and bigotry that actually is very awful right now in our country, and now more than ever. And so these 14 principles are comprised of six men, and eight women. Within this 14 people, there are six African-American Muslims, yes, African-Americans who are Muslim. I know sometimes people have a hard time registering that. 14 African-American Muslim principals. Three of them are women and three are men. There were six Arab-American uh, leaders who actually run the gamut from different parts of the Middle East, someone from Tanzania, and someone from Pakistan. And originally, I had actually found 20 nationally. 20 nationally. What does that tell us about our education system right now? We need to do serious work in making sure that our school system is as diverse as our country is becoming. So what I wanted to learn about these individuals was three things. I wanted to know what their lived experiences were based on the political discourse that exists within our country, the global events that we hear about all the time, 
and the media coverage of Islam and Muslims. I wanted to know what was like life for them like with these dynamics happening. I wanted to understand what their day-to-day -day life was like in their school communities. And so it was very, very interesting because the findings were really amazing and I'm going to share some of them. But before I do that, I also wanna make sure to let you know that if I wrote the stories of all 14 people, my book would actually be 800 pages long. And I did not want to write an 800 page book. I wanted to write a book that each and every person will pick up and read and continue the discussion in their communities. And so what I did is I focused on the lived experiences of four of these people. And I'm going to share with you some snippets of what life is like for them. The first one is actually Najla. Najla was a teacher, pre 9-11, elementary school, doing a fabulous job September 11th happened, she was in the classroom, had no idea, dismissed her kids, and then went to the main office to see what was going on, even though that they had heard buzzes and what have you. She went and watched her staff in the cafeteria, basically watching the screen and seeing what had happened. And her colleagues turned to her when she said, what are you watching? They told her, that what they were watching was Arabs and Muslims did this to us, and they all looked at her at the same time. She was so terrified of the looks that she was getting that she ran back into her classroom and huddled under her desk, crying of fear. Nejla continued her, her career in education, and one of the things that she wanted to do pre-9-11 was actually to become a school principal. And that was her aspiration. So she finally, after a couple of years, went into a leadership program to become a principal. And one of her colleagues said this to her, Nejla, if you want to become a school leader, you need to change your wardrobe if you want to be a school leader. That, in a sense, is code language of take your hijab off if you really want this position. And she struggled internally, spiritually, professionally, and decided to take it off. She became an assistant principal, became a principal, and eventually, when I actually met her, she was already working on a district level, and now is serving as an assistant superintendent, but remains without hijab. And so struggles internally about having to sacrifice her faith for her career. Another person I want to share with you is actually Rula. Rula is a very extraordinary woman who was a guidance counselor, has social work background. She took a very failing school that was on the brinks of closing. She brought it back up and to an A grade for three years in a row. The school board decided to hire an executive director they made her a part of the process to actually be able to choose who the executive director was. They narrowed it down to two people. She went off on summer vacation, came back from summer vacation, and found they hired someone else. They hired 
a 9-11 family member. Their first encounter after being introduced and having an opportunity to chit-chat and get to know one another sounded like this. Are you Muslim? Is your husband Muslim? Are you a practicing Muslim? Now we know that your employer can't ask you these questions. It's illegal. And Rula knew this. But she was like, I'm going to forget about this. I'm going to try to win this woman over, and I'm going to make it work. As much as Rula wanted to make it work, it didn't work because this woman couldn't accept her because she was Muslim. She chipped away at Rula's self-esteem and worth and her professional integrity and her professionalism as a, a leader who brought a school from nearly cl closing to an A grade three years in a row. By the end of the school year in April, she was so, under so much duress, Rula, that she actually fainted in the school, was taken out by EMS, hospitalized for two weeks. The school board didn't check on her, the executive director didn't check on her, and finally when she came back to work, submitted to the school board a 14-page letter chronicling how her school year was. They never acknowledged it, and at the end of the school year, they sent her a letter letting her know they were discontinuing her service as the school leader. The more awful thing that happened to Rula is from that illness that she suffered was she now for life has to take seizure medication. That's how much duress she was under that it affected her emotionally and physically. The next person I want to highlight to you is actually Aziz. Aziz is African-American, very handsome, well-dressed, well-built man. When he walks in through the door, he just, you can see the authority that he brings into the room with him. But the moment that he says, my name is Aziz Mahmoud, he can see the reaction on the people's faces when they first meet him and hear that name. And literally feels that authority that he walked in with just dissipate because of what people are probably thinking about him and his Muslim name. His story is one that's really um, also heartbreaking. He one year had staff that were Muslim and asked to go to make Friday prayer. He also had students, it's a high school, who wanted to go make the Friday prayer. And so he accommodated the staff, making sure that they had flexible scheduling to be able to go make their prayer and come back. He gave permission to the students. And then one day out of nowhere, he gets a call that he's under investigation for promoting Islam in his school. His teachers went under investigation with investigators coming and questioning them. He was questioned. The students were questioned. The families were questioned. He spent the whole entire year in turmoil thinking, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. Eventually, 
At the disciplinary hearing that he had, they basically dismissed them, but told him that he cannot walk with his children, his Muslim students, to the mosque. If they do walk out, that he should be on a separate side of the street, he should not engage in any conversation with them going to the mosque. In regards to his staff, they found nothing wrong with it because he was able to provide them that opportunity. But from that experience, Aziz distanced himself from his students, has chosen now to not speak to his students about anything, the Muslim students, because he was afraid that this was going to actually put him again in some turmoil that he did not want to um, be put in. And so sadly, um, what a missed opportunity it is for his students, that he can't bond with them like he can bond with all of his other students in the school. But this is what is happening in many schools across the country with school leaders who are of different backgrounds and who are minorities. And the last person I want to highlight who's in the book is actually Amon. And Amon was really interesting when I approached him. He told me, I'm not the kind of Muslim you want to talk to. And I was like, well, what kind of Muslim are you? And he's like, well, I'm really not Muslim. So I don't think I qualify to be in your research. And I was like, please, I want you, please. He finally agreed. He wasn't practicing. He ate pork, he, ate, he, you know, he drank alcohol, he did everything that Muslims don't generally do. And, and he basically was like, so I'm not the perfect person for you. I was like, no, I want, I want you. And he engaged me and he answered the questions. And sadly, when I had asked a question about spirituality because it was important, he um, at first went on this tirade that everything that's happening to Muslims is their fault and that no Muslim clerics or religious leaders or scholars are out there denouncing terrorism and speaking out and condemning and you know, being out there. And I was like, where does this man live? Because you know, I've heard so many of them out there. And of course, I had to hold back as a researcher and let him just speak. But as he continued to speak, I started to hear Fox News rhetoric being said by a Muslim. And sadly, what I saw with Amen is he internalized the negative things about Islam and Muslims that are in the rhetoric. And it was really heartbreaking, and I just had to absorb all this. And then after I did the study, I sent him a very long email with a whole bunch of links for him to simply go and see where all these international statements are and who's doing what and how the Muslim community is civically engaged and combating hate and, and speaking up to defend Islam, et cetera. And I didn't hear back from him. But one of the things in the, in the study that I had asked them was about their spirituality. And one of the things that he said when I asked him to rate himself from one to 10, he rated himself a seven. And he actually re-encountered a childhood experience that he had with his stepmother who was British and became Muslim. And he basically said, you know, if everybody could, if all the Muslims could be Muslim like my stepmother, 
then the Muslim world would be a better place. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is interesting. So I wanted to give you just a snippet of the life of these four people. Um, the book is chock full of uh, experiences of actually the other four, the other um, four, 10 people. Uh, the research is reflective within the book. It's there. You, you know, the, the themes that emerge were political climate, that it played a role in affecting them, the role of the media and how it affected them as well. They always were made to feel inferior and foreign. And also, they were made to feel this unconscious fear, always double-checking everything that they were saying to avoid being called an Islamist or that they have an Islamic agenda. Um, and so those are the findings. And what I would love to do is engage you all in further discussion. I will be here. We actually have the book for signing. Um, so you could see me. I don't know where, but you could see me to do it. And I'm just really, really excited to share it with you. And the last thing that I'm going to say about the book, which I said earlier, is it's a dialogue starter. Read it. There is plenty of call to action to stand up for your American Muslim brothers and sisters in public education, but not only in education, but also in leadership, whether it's the private sector, the public sector, the things that were happening to these school leaders, I've heard them happening on Wall Street, and I've heard them happening in Washington, D.C., and so it's time that we have that discussion of how we become real allies. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.